Newsroom, everybody. It's a momentous day because the OG3 is here. We're all here today, which hasn't happened for like five or six weeks, I think. So yeah. great to have everyone back. Emily's here. Bradley's Ooh. here. Despite him traveling everywhere, he's here today. <laughs> yeah. Reunited and it feels so good. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> More importantly than these two being here, we have an amazing guest. And Bradley's on a streak of getting amazing guests. Today, we have Kim Stackhouse Lawson here from CSU Ag Next, and we're going to be talking kind of a follow-up on a previous episode. In episode 133, we had Shane Bedwell on to talk about Herefords, which was probably one of Bradley's favorite episodes, to talk about some of the sustainability projects they have going and the partnership they have with CSU. So with that, thank you for being here, Kim. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get to the very important questions, Kim, can you just give us an uh, an overview of what you do very briefly? Uh, I know it's probably pretty hard to, to do it briefly, but uh, give us an overview of your position, what you do now, maybe a little background on where you were previously. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm the director of Agnext at CSU, which is a new initiative um, with, within the college that sits between the College of Ag and the College of Vet Med and Biomedical Sciences. So my role here is to lead um, that group. And then I also conduct um, my own research, which is wonderful and, of course, very fun and have graduate students and um, all the things that scientists love to do. Uh, prior to that, I was the head of sustainability for JBS USA. So JBS is the um, second largest food company in the world, and all they do is animal protein. So it's a pretty unique um, group. And I led the sustainability initiatives for the company outside of Brazil. So my responsibility was in all of the business units, so all three proteins, um, beef, pork, and chicken, and then all of the ancillary businesses as well in North America, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. Prior to that, I was with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, where I started the Beef Checkoff Sustainability Research Program and also started the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And then prior to that, um, my Ph.D., I'm a UC Davis alum and worked alongside Frank Mitloner um, there. So, yeah, it's it's fun to come back to academia, but I certainly um, took a bit of a securitous route to, to get there and to come back. Well, you can see why we're so excited to have Kim on. There, there's so much information and and that we want to get out. Um, hopefully, we can get it done in one episode. We might split it just because there's so much to talk about. And Bradley's super excited, uh, especially with the sustainability side. But before we get into anything, Emily, take us away. Of course, for our regular listeners, we have a guest on, so you know what it's time for. Um, our two questions. Kim, the first question we have for you, super important. No wrong answers, despite what Joe and Brad may tell you. What is your favorite breed of dairy cattle? That's It's hard for me to pick a favorite because cows are my favorite animals. Um, and it's, I think, just their majestic nature and um, all of the things we don't know about them and all of the things we do know about them. You know, they're sort of the reason I went to graduate school is that I could just watch them all day. And I, it's kind of nerdy and a little bit weird, um, but I really could. So from kind of boss syndicus to boss Taurus, 
I don't know what it is, if it's their noses or their eyelashes or how they can eat anything and turn it into delicious milk and meat. So to pick a favorite is hard. I grew up showing livestock um, in 4-H and FFA, and um, I was in the round robin at our state fair because I had one, uh, we showed sheep, so I had one showmanship. And it was my last year and I was showing a brown Swiss and of course backwards, right? Which is hard for us sheep kids. Like we walk forward and this cow and she was a big, I mean, in full milk production cow that was showing. And she gave me the biggest kiss in front, like licked me from neck to the top of my head as the judge was walking by and I ended up winning round Robin somehow because I learned later, right. That as a dairy kid, like that's one of the things you do not do is let them just totally like you, but she was so endearing and so sweet. So I would have to say certainly not a favorite breed, but she might be my all time favorite cow <laughs> because it's, been, it's put a lasting impression um, on me as she looked down on me because of course she was huge and um, gave me the biggest kiss ever. <laughs> so we got one friendly brown Swiss. All right, Joe, where are we at in our tally? Unfortunately, Holstein's at 20, Jersey's at 14, brown Swiss now at eight, Montbelliard oh. at three, Dutch belted at three, Normandy at two, Guernsey at two, Milking Shorthorn at one, and Ayrshire at one. And of course, a special shout out to a Guernsey named Taffy. Shout out to Taffy. Yes. So that brings us to our next question. And I, now I'm curious if you're going to have a similar answer to this one. What is your favorite breed of beef cattle? Yes. Yeah, so again, can't pick a favorite breed, but I have a favorite cow. This was sort of my big introduction into animal agriculture. So I grew up my parents are both foresters, so natural resource um, kind of ecologist. My dad has a master's in fire ecology, and my mother was the first female forester in the state of California. So that's, you know, kind, kind of cool that she um, was able to accomplish that. And so I didn't grow up in animal agriculture, but we grew up in a community that was trees and ranches. Um, and in Northern California, those two things very much work in parallel. And so we had made friends with a um, significant rancher in the state. They, I think they had like 2000 mama cows. So a big, a big operation in Northern California. And he befriended me and um, I was 10 years old and he would take me out on, I would ride his ranch horses and we would go count cows and see the ranch. And there was an orphan Herford heifer and her name was Annabelle. And that was the first cow I ever owned. My parents then, you know, we ended up, we ended up owning about 50 Angus cows as, as we got more comfortable through Annabelle and some other things. But Annabelle died on our property when she was 18 years old. And there was nobody that was ever going to allow that sweet cow to do anything else. We rode her she was, she was like the introduction. So I will say no favorite, but a favorite, a favorite cow. And her name was Annabelle. Well, Annabelle sounds very special. And that mentorship relationship you were able to build with that yeah. rancher sounds really special too. So thanks for sharing that. But I know, I know Bradley is kind of happy because you mentioned <laughs> Annabelle was a Hereford. Yes. Annabelle was a Hereford. So. <laughs> that is the, that is the correct answer. Yes. <laughs> It, it is the correct answer, according to Bradley, and the, the totals on an update is that Herefords are sneaking up the board here. 
Black Angus at 14, Herefords at 10 now, with a special shout out to Annabelle, Black Baldies at four, Scottish Highlander at four, Red Angus at three, Belted Galloway at two, Shorthorn at two, and all with one, Stabilizer, Galvi, Brahmin, Keenina, Charlay, Simiton, Alore, Jersey, Normandy, Belgian Blue, Brangus, Piedmontese, and White Park. I think it's time now to just dive into the meaty questions and where I really want to start is naturally at the very beginning. Uh, so you mentioned a little bit about being the director for CSU, that's Colorado State University, for their Egg Next program. So can you just tell us a little more about what Egg Next is, how what you do with it helps farmers, just the, the overview of the program? Sure. Yeah. So Ag Next um, was really born out of a need for industry and academia to come together to address some of the most critical and pressing challenges that's facing the animal agriculture industry today. Um, so our mission is to identify and scale innovation that fosters the health of animals and ecosystems to promote profitable industries that support vibrant communities. Um, so what's different about us when you think about a sustainability center is that one, all we do is focus on animal agriculture. Two, we believe it's an important part of a sustainable global food system. Three, we're a group that's really focused forward. So when we look at the majority of sustainability work that has been done, it's looked backwards in time, right? How have we changed management strategies and how has that shifted outcomes that we see today? But what we heard from our industry partners is that's not good enough anymore. We need a team that is innovating. We need a team that is failing 99% of the time so that that 1% of the time we have a solution that's going to work. We need a team that's looking 10 years out. Now, we're not ready to look 10 years out. We haven't, we're not caught up. We're still in the sustainability space in animal ag, especially when you think about it through the lens of greenhouse gas and climate, we're still behind. But the intent is that, is that we will eventually be very focused forward. And the other really unique thing about us is that, you, and I said it in the mission statement, we're very focused on the three pillars of sustainability, but what we heard from our industry partners was that maintaining economic status was not acceptable. They want and deserve, frankly, to be profitable. And that's a really important aspect of what we do when we're thinking about scalable solutions. So the most exciting thing about Agnext is the investment that CSU leadership has put into the initiative. So Agnext, and we are working through this currently, will come with an eventual 12-person faculty cluster hire. I would be the 13th person, and I do have a research appointment, so I think it counts as 13. Um, but we'll have a group of 12 who are focused exclusively on developing sustainable solutions in animal ag. And those cluster hires will extend across the university. So from veterinary medicine to ag resource economics, to animal science, to ecology, to engineering. And that group will coalesce around this mission and vision and work in that space of private-public partnerships. So we've actually established an industry innovation working group where we focus on continuous engagement with our industry partners. And those members have a, their term at three years. So we're constantly hearing from new um, people in, in that space. And it could be a smaller rancher, right, who has maybe 40 or 50 cows to a, a multinational food company. Right now we have Safeway and Albertson sitting on that, right? So we're really trying to 
there's an organic dairy, there's a conventional dairy. You know, we're really trying to bring together diverse stakeholders to understand what are your challenges, how can we help innovate with you, and how do we work in parallel to make sure that we're answering the questions that are most pressing to you. So asking them things like, why, why is this hard to implement? Where, where is the challenge as we come from more, you know, focused research to actual boots on the ground? Let's put this practice in that place-based kind of solution setting. I, I like that it is trying to look forward. We've been, like you said, looking backwards and trying to never quite catch up. It's really exciting that there's that much backing yeah. and support behind it. That's not an easy thing to get done. You mentioned the three pillars of sustainability. And I think one of the things that we struggle with is that sustainability has a lot of different definitions for a lot of different people. So can you run through those three pillars just real quick so we're all starting on the same page? Yeah. So those three pillars for sustainability are environment, social, and economic. And they're spoken about in different terms, right? So I think one, those are certainly the most common. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the definition that someone may have, but that's certainly the way that the, the topic area of sustainability has matured, which is really positive, right? It, it allows those of us who focus in this area to be more systems focused and to understand unique um, perhaps unintended consequences, right? So if you focus on a on a on a solution in one category, you know, there's going to be effects in the system. And the the intent is that you're developing solutions that are not myoptic, so not single focused, right? And also considerate of these other really important elements of business. That's, I really that's... like how you talk about the three pillars because I think presenting sustainability more in here's the general framework than here's the exact definition, I think is really helpful because, yeah, sustainability can mean all of these things. And so when we divide it up, uh, you know, the way you presented with environment, social, economic, did I get them all? I think mm -hmm. you did. So, yeah. And to me, I'm like, oh, yeah. So it works as a system. And we see how these systems frameworks uh, can really help drive innovation and and drive more ideas forward than more so just squabbling about what does this word really mean? What is its definition? So I think that that's a really great way to look at it. Thanks. And I think, Emily, the work that you do in um, health and safety is absolutely a part of sustainability, right? It fits in that social category. So does social equity, social justice, um, access of producers to Wi-Fi, for example. I mean, all of these things, right, encompass a broader, more balanced approach when we think about sustainable solutions. And yes, we're hyper-focused on the moment at greenhouse gases and climate because that's the pressure, right, that everybody is feeling. And I think that that's another really important thing um, in sustainability to keep in mind is that emotion and science are all often on equal, not often, always on equal footing, right? And if you ever have a question about which one wins, it's not what the four of us do every day, right? It's it's often the emotional drivers that will elevate different topic areas within the broader sustainability you know, co concept or or a theory um, up. And right now that's greenhouse gases and climate. It has been in the past antibiotic resistance. It has been in the past animal welfare. Um, oftentimes for many corporations, team member health and safety is the number one thing that, they, that they're focused on, right? So it's going to depend on a lot of different things, how 
these topic areas are prioritized within an organization like the Hereford Association to um, an organization that, that may be like a Nestle or Unilever, right? They're all, they're all going to be approaching these topics differently. And that's one of the reasons that sustainability remains a little elusive when you start thinking about a definition. It's also one of the reasons it's so complex because based on how a company or an organization or a producer may be prioritizing these different things is going to depend on how they're measuring, reporting, and verifying those things, right? So they may actually be using different performance metrics. They may be using different standards. They may be reporting it um, through a different lens because it's it should be allowed to get quite prescriptive for that individual or that operation, right? That's really the intent of the topic area. So that's one of the reasons that I think animal agriculture in particular, when we start talking about animal agriculture kind of at the industry level, it's one of the reasons sustainability is so challenging is because it's not, it, it lacks clarity. And yet some of that is is intentional and really important. Right, so that we can pivot and do systems things, and we can talk about unintended consequences, and producers can get place based because what works for a dairy in Minnesota might not work for a dairy in Colorado, right? And we've got to let these individuals use solutions driving towards innovation and similar outcomes, but those solutions may be vastly different, right? And we've got to we've got to empower that, and we've got to. We've got to help them take credit for that too, right? In in this emotional framing of the topic. Well, and that's something that we talk about on the show quite often, especially related to cattle production, that nothing is cookie cutter. Like you can't take a, a protocol or something and just plug it in on another cattle operation, dairy or beef, because they're so different. I'm super excited that that's the way that this is going and that you're trying to empower each individual system or region or individual themselves to figure it out in their own way. I mean, we got some of your background, Kim, on, you know, how you got interested in cattle themselves, but how did you get interested in this specific area of study, talking about carbon footprints and things like that when it relates to cattle? So I was in graduate school. um, Well, actually, I was just finishing my undergrad at Davis in California when San Francisco had their first um, Meatless Monday. And it was in response to dairy's impact, actually, on on the climate. And it was a really unique thing, right, to experience, right? Because I was a I was a senior. I was thinking about what I was going to do next. I I knew I wanted to make a difference, but I wasn't totally sure how. And then all of a sudden, San Francisco has a meatless Monday around, um, you know, this is how you save the planet, basically, go meat free and go dairy free. And all of a sudden, um, Davis has the leading expert in greenhouse gas emissions. And Dr. Mentloner was an assistant professor at the time, and he had been at Davis for one or two years, right, and had um, measured emissions from beef. But I mean, we didn't really know anything about greenhouse gas emissions, right, in in that 2005, 2006 timeframe. And so it's just this really right time, right place for me. And and my background, right, when I, I grew up in Northern California and trees and cows coexisted and it was beautiful. Like the, you know, it was, it was amazing. Those cattle provided great food. The trees provided, you know, awesome infrastructure. Wildlife existed. Like I didn't understand why there was this pushback around livestock and environmental impact. And I went to Frank and I said, 
I want to help. What can I do? And he said, come to graduate school. And that's, that's how I got interested. And uh, yeah, I took my first atmospheric classes and learned about climate change and global warming and um, how anthropogenic greenhouse gases contribute to that and where they come from. And then I got good at, you know, more than just the principles of nutrition that a, you know, a typical undergraduate would take and away we went. And it's it's been really fun. So I guess to answer your question, carbon, I've never, I mean, I really wasn't. And I'm, I, is it, is it what I'm interested in now? Sure. It's what I'm good at. Um, but I think the passion that drives me is to develop solutions that work for the cattle and now work for the people, right? My love for cattle has matured into love for people. I think that's something a lot of scientists go through, right? We tend to be pretty introverted and I still would rather be with cows than people, but I have grown to really love the cattle community and love what they provide all of us and to help them come up with solutions that improve the environment and also hopefully improve their profitability and, you know, make food security a, a real thing for hungry people across the globe is something that inspires me. And today, uh, carbon is some of the pushback that we receive. So that's what I study. I don't know if I'll study something differently as that changes, right? So, I mean, it's it's sort of been this sort of interesting um, evolution, but when I sat down with Frank and said I wanted to make a difference and he said, I think you can here, he was right. And that's that's what's driven me. So yeah, I guess I'm a little less about carbon, a little more about the cows and the people and the planet that needs nutrition. I mean, we've talked about how a lot of the the driver of this is emotion. And that's what we're on right now. We're talking about emissions. And so that's obviously been one of your your focuses lately. Give us a brief overview of your emissions work in general, and then we'll we'll follow up with some some specific questions to see if if we have answers at all, even yeah. to, to these questions. Yeah, I would love to. Um, so we're a relatively new um, organization it, within a university, of course, and I've only been back in academia for two years. So that's a very short time frame to build a research program. But what I have been working on is building the largest research facility in the country to measure greenhouse gas emissions from livestock. And, and we have that now at CSU. So we can measure 215 head individually. And if we jump to pin level emissions, um, we can measure 320 head at a time. And that's a confinement setting and grazing settings. Um, and as we know, right, grazing, you know, we don't know much about um, emissions from grazing animals. There's been some great work done um, actually at Michigan State, but really understanding emissions and how they differ in different regions and different grazing environments is something we do not know from a scientific perspective. And our models are not truly granular enough to even estimate them well right so that so that's something i have great great passion in so we're we're working on kind of getting a lot of this research um up and running we will do a lot baselining emissions so you know today the equations that the international panel on climate change and epa use to estimate methane emissions are only based on data from 440 head and a lot of that data is relatively antiquated like think 2010 timeframe that we were collecting a lot of that data. So, you know, we we believe pretty strongly that cattle have changed since 2010. We believe strongly that we're better at measuring emissions now. And no, it's not super fundable, right, or novel work. And yet it's so important to get accurate, 
baseline emissions on where we're at today for a lot of reasons, right? We need them for confidence in, in carbon markets. We need them so the producers have confidence on where to start. And we need them so that we know, okay, if we implement X technology, Remensen or Munensen, depending upon what species you're working with, is a great example, right? How much is it really improving and how do we begin to stack these technologies? So in the cattle feeding world, right, we know that fat reduces emissions. We know steam flake corn reduces emissions. We know Remensen reduces emissions a little bit. But what happens when we start stacking those things? That's never actually been studied. And those are really basic technologies, not even, I mean, technologies is even a stretch, right? Management schemes that producers are implementing today. So maybe they don't get credit for them in the carbon market, but we should certainly understand where our emissions are at today so that we can prioritize other scalable solutions, whatever they may be, right? Genetic identification of low producing methane animals, feed additives, whatever it is. But we've got to understand where we're at today, what's the actual rumen physiology capable of, and then how much more can we get? And, and it's interesting, I'm not really a scientist who focuses much on that kind of basic work. It's not really what interests me. What interests me is more place-based production um, practical type research, but we need some of that before we can jump into, all right, let's roll on solutions, right? And we're not ready. And I think, you know, I think when we think about emissions, the majority comes from the cow-calf system and beef. 70 to 80% of the methane emissions are coming from grazing animals. And that is a big black dark hole of data. And there are no solutions today that have been tested that actually mitigate absolute emissions, right? We're really good at reducing intensity. So actually using fewer resources to produce more. Producers do great focusing on efficiency metrics. Those are very important. We need to keep doing that. But to actually reduce total emissions, that's where we lack a lot of data and a lot of solutions that are ready to go, especially on beef, a little less so on dairy. Yeah, and I find that uh, interesting. and and. A lot of us researchers, uh, you know, I was away uh, for a bit here, and that's one of the things that we we're trying to figure out as well is how do we mitigate in grazing? You know, we, we were talking from the dairy perspective as well, but but beef as well. You know, grazing is such a black box to know what to do and how to measure it. And there's so many other factors that go into that that we might not have in conventional systems. So it's I, I think that's a key is is with grazing, you know, to to be able to kind of figure that out and it's not going to be easy no and it's very expensive <laughs> exactly um, the innovations around technology to measure animals in their natural environment has improved so much and it's incredible um what we can do now but typically those units tap out those green feed units tap out at about 24 head where you can actually get good individual data there's just some serious restrictive <laughs> maybe it's not yeah. the right word yeah. but it's it's hard. It's just really hard to do. And it's going to take us some time. And I think importantly, you know, there's really limited access to federal funding and grants that actually want to understand what are the emissions? Why do we have these emissions? How are the emissions different from cattle grazing in Minnesota versus Colorado? Why are they different? What happens when we take a cow from Colorado and send her to Minnesota and vice versa? Are the methane emissions duplicate? And right. it's going to help us understand what's happening in that 
microbial environment, microbial and physiological environment, and maybe help us get to a solution faster, right? But there's private funding for solutions. I've got a molecule, you know, I want you to study the molecule, but, but we're coming at it from the top rather than from developing knowledge, letting innovation happen after you've developed the knowledge. So there's this huge gap. And that huge gap is frankly causing a lot of problems for reporting as well, right? In the, in the corporate sustainability space, as people set more and more net zero targets and start to work on reporting supply chain scope three emissions, all of these things are connected. And so this gap, I don't know how it's just like, right. it, but the gap yeah. is really, really, really important. And is it super sexy science? No, yeah. but is it desperately needed? Yes. Yes. Desperately yeah. needed. Well, it looks like you answered the the next question because we were going to ask you about what what phase produces most of our emissions, but we've been talking about grazing doing that. So we've got our answer there. Brad, what's your next question? Well, one well, and, and it kind of follows up. You know, we talk about breeds. You know, and, and I'm a, a geneticist by training, so I'm very in, into breeds and specific data from breeds and not one, you know, Holsteins are not the same from Jersey. Angus is not the same from Herefords. So like I said, at the beginning, I attended a, a webinar where you presented and, and you formed a partnership with the American Hereford Association. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be, you know, why Herefords, you know, is, is, is that the future? And, and how do we go about trying to figure out uh, with, with different breeds to sort of improve sustainability, reduce emissions, things like that? You know, this was an initiative that the Hereford Association came to us with, and they are actually running the research in their own um, research station. So they are buying the green feeds. They're putting it into their modules. We are working on um, helping them with data analysis, So, which I really appreciate, right? I think it's really important to have robust and multidisciplinary teams that look at this for the reasons we already discussed, those those three pillars of sustainability. So they're essentially working alongside CSU to make sure that we're not, so so there's a methane expert, there's actually a nitrogen expert as well. There's the genetics, the, the animal breeding and genetics teams, there's an animal welfare expert involved, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of experts that are analyzing data. We're clearly, you know, helping on the methane side, right? We look at a lot of methane data. So um, that's sort of the role we're playing, but the American Hereford Association is really conducting the research. Now, Brad, to get back to your question, right, around how can genetics play a role potentially huge, right? We know that there's a 10 to 15% variation in methane emissions from animals who are fed the same diet in confinement, which Lord only knows what the variation is on animals in grazing if the variation is so big on cattle in confinement, right? I think there's incredible potential to select for lower methane producing animals. Now, but Brad, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how long to measure the methane for. We don't know what other metrics we need, right? Feed intake, sure. And feed efficiencies, as you well know, is not highly heritable, right? But like, it's got to be connected to methane somehow. How? We know RFI, um, residual feed intake, it has, in some studies has shown, there's maybe five or six studies that have actually been published in this space. And so all of it's very confusing. And more importantly, we don't even know the methods by which we should be conducting to answer these questions, which again, Going back to the basic science, I actually don't like doing, but we have to know 
how long you actually have to measure methane for to get to an actual phenotype. And we don't. So I think that there's incredible potential. So the American Hereford Association is going to be figuring a lot of that out likely on their own. And it, in fairness, and should be proprietary to them, frankly. But there's also this huge need in the public space where our institutions work to publish that and to figure it out for society at large, but also other breed associations, right? How do we begin to select these animals? We're trying to do some of that, Brad, when we're when we're doing other trials, we'll try to measure, you know, we're trying to run data analytics on some of those questions. But again, funding for methods, papers, Brad, it's not, it's not easy, right? We all know it's not easy to go find those kinds of funds. Yeah, and I agree. Trying to do a bunch of breed comparisons for stuff, is, it, it's, it's always difficult. And, and what do you measure? Yeah, you said, how long do you measure? I think those are great questions. And, and some of this is really getting back down to the true applied research that I think a lot of us need to do. And, and that can really answer a lot of the questions that we all have for consumers and the dairy and the beef industry as a whole. And sometimes, yep, it's maybe not rocket science to, to figure this out, but I think getting back to those basics is really what we need. And that, that's my interest as well as from a, a dairy perspective is, you know, I don't want to pit one breed against the other and say, well, this one's better and this, we should just move the industry to this breed. But I think understanding the, the dynamics of the breeds, trying to figure out how they all work based on different diets, different phases. There's so much that we don't know. And, and that's why I'm excited to, you know, learn about what Hereford is doing and, and your, your work with them. So maybe we can apply that into the dairy space because we're maybe a little bit behind the beef industry in, in, in trying to do that. I don't know. I don't know. I, this is this is the first group that has started. There's been a couple of groups that have talked about it for sure. But, you know, I think you're right. Right. And, and I don't think it is one breed over another. Right. I think the other really important thing to remember about sustainability. And yes, we get myoptic on climate and we all have to make sure we don't. Right. We all have to say, like, all right, we're focused on methane because there's all this pressure. But there's reasons that breeds are used in different climates, different regions for different products. I mean, the Jersey Holstein example is perfect, right? And and those things have to be, I won't, I won't say they should trump methane because right now the pressure is such, I don't know that they can, but they need to be considered on an unequal playing field with methane, right? We have to do, we have to do everything well, and that's hard. It's really, really hard, especially for trait selection, which I'm not even a geneticist, but our geneticists at CSU have helped me understand that this is going to be very difficult. But I mean, so it may, it may end up being an index, right? And it may end up being incremental progress towards a more holistic or well-balanced assessment of sustainability, right? That, that includes methane, 100%, yes, but also includes other really important parameters. You know, maybe we define efficiency more broadly or more holistically or something, or optimization, but it's going to have to be everything moving in the same direction. So before we get going too much further, we've said the name green feed system several times. Yeah. And just so that we're we're on the same page, I know that the three of us know what a green feed system is, but can you just briefly describe what that is and why it's so central to everything that we're trying to do? Yeah. So green feeds are um, a methane 
measurement device that was developed by C-Lock Incorporated. And they are a very cool machine because you can measure methane from animals, individual animals, in their natural environment. And so the way the machine works, it has a hopper and the hopper dispenses a bait. Um, we use alfalfa pellets. And the animal is baited. So a chime goes off and they hear the bait drop. Uh, my graduate students affectionately um, refer to the green feeds as the snack mobiles. Um, and so the animal is given a snack and he or she comes in. Their RFID tag basically records the animal that's there. They eat the snack. And then while they're eating the snack for usually three to five, three to six minutes is what we hope for, they respire methane. So biggest misnomer, right, about methane is that it's farted. It's not. The majority is expelled from the animal. So another misnomer is that it's burped. It is burped for sure, but actually 75% is respired through the lungs. So that's why this works. So they can actually eat a snack. And over time, it takes about 30 days, but over time, and they visit anywhere from, it depends on the system, but we hope for two to six times a day. And then over time, we get really accurate measures of methane. I mean, comparable to our other, the other ways that we measure methane. And uh, many of us who are more applied would argue that this is a more accurate um, measurement because the cattle is, they're never in like whole animal chambers or their, their heads are never in a respiration um, head box or, you know, they're really living and eating how they would be in their natural kind of home environment, whatever, whatever that is from a dairy to a feed yard, to a pasture, to, you know, whatever, whatever they're used to. It's really cool technology. I wish they measured more animals. Yeah. And weren't as expensive. They are expensive, like you talked about, which is a barrier to this, and then how many animals you can put on each one. So the overhead per animal, we don't you don't want to figure that number no. out at all. No, or maintenance cost per day. No, no, don't, don't do don't that. Don't figure either. that either. <laughs> no, not not a not a good idea. Not a good idea. We do a lot of applied work for our industry partners. So one of the reasons, and I should have mentioned this, that we were able to build that research facility is because we had producer partners actually buy and donate the green feed machines to us. All eight of them. That's amazing. Amazing. I, uh, amazing. Yeah. And we got new intake units so that there wasn't any interference between the grow safe units and the green. Like our industry partners are you know, Kim, just go right here. Here you go. Now, finding dollars to actually do research in those facilities is a whole nother challenge. But um, that's one of the reasons our facilities exist. And it wouldn't have been possible without them. Right. So we do the majority of our work is on crossbred, traditional, arid west cattle. And that's because it's what's meaningful to our producer partners out here. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that's that's where we take our lead a lot of the time is yeah. is when we get uh, that information back from industry stakeholders. And that's yeah. the direction it goes a lot of times. Absolutely. That is fun that Herford is taking a leadership role here. Uh, right? Bradley will agree, this. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Develop. I agree. It's really fun to watch them do it. Um, and I'm I'm wickedly excited to see the data. Oh, um, me too. You know, to have access to, to that data is going to be we're going to learn a lot. And I mean, we're excited too. Like I was saying before, we're, we're trying to figure out some of these methods on top of other, you know, research projects that we're doing. It takes forever, of course, because methods papers take lots of data. So we're like combining things and trying to make sure we're doing all of the right measures at the right times, even if it's not applicable to the study and not, in, you know, implicating other studies and, you know, all the, the things we try to juggle. 
Um, but I'm excited about comparing results on methods, right? Like, did you guys see the same things? Did you guys see something different? So I'm really happy and proud of them for taking a leadership role, but there's not a, you know, Herford was chosen for, for these reasons. It was just, they, they're being leaders. So we're here to support them. That's a good enough reason for us. I think it's time to switch gears a little bit. Uh, just kind of go over some of the the things that we've been reading about and and had questions on that we thought would be valuable to our listeners when it comes to CSU Ag Next and some of the the things in general that we we use as terms in the industry. And one of those things is adaptive livestock management. So first of all, what what is adaptive livestock management? And then how does that fit into the the context of sustainability? We define adaptive livestock management as livestock grazing. What's up, everybody? Dr. Joe Armstrong. Not going to lie to you. We let this episode get really, really, really long. Had to cut it. It was just way too long. Too much information to digest at one time. So, unfortunately, you're going to have to come back next week to finish our conversation with Dr. Kim Stackhouse Lawson. Lots of great information left in this conversation. I hope you join us next week. Comments, questions, scathing rebuttals, they go to the Moose Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. That's all I'm going to do for plugs today. I really appreciate it, everybody. Thank you. Check the show notes for more information. Bye.